You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. What's going on, everybody? Thanks so much for hanging out with us for another episode of the Justice Set Conversation. For those of you back for more... Much love. For those of you here for the first time, welcome. I'm really excited for the release of this episode, episode 49 with Mark Vittorio. And one of the reasons why is, you know, we've chatted with a lot of people, people of various degrees of fame, Chris Harrison and Mark Cuban, who are known nationally and, and maybe even internationally. Of course, we got uh, people that have local fame and have accomplished this or accomplished that. Well, I also love having the conversations with people that you know maybe aren't uh, at that level of fame, but their level of accomplishment is still so unique. And Mark Vittoria is one of those people. He's someone who uh, is such an instrumental part of your viewing experience for uh, sporting events on Fox Sports Southwest, whether it's Rangers baseball, Stars hockey. He's been involved. Uh, with other products as well, uh, both in this market and out of this market. Mark Vittorio is is one of the foremost broadcasting minds in the country. And I'm not just saying that because I'm, I'm interviewing him and I'm trying to sell this interview. I'm saying it because that's what his peers have said about him. Uh, in, in preparing for my conversation with Vito, who I've known now for a few years, you know, I asked some people around the industry and, and that was pretty much a, a consensus sentiment shared. So, this conversation hopefully takes you into the truck, the TV truck, and, and into the mind of someone who helps shape these broadcasts that, that we consume on a regular basis, that uh, and much more. But before we get started, just a reminder, I would really, really appreciate if you would consider subscribing to the channel, liking the video, commenting on the video, or just sharing the link to this interview or whatever other content you find uh, on my YouTube channel, you can catch all of the Justice Set conversations in addition to other sports-specific interviews and commentaries. Check out the channel. Hopefully there's stuff for you and uh, your friends, but would really, really appreciate if you would consider subscribing, liking, commenting, or just sharing the link. It all makes a difference, and I really appreciate your continued support. All right, now, without further ado, episode 49 of the Justice Set Conversation with Mark Vittori. All right, Vito, this is a very generic question, but I, I like to start with this. You can go in whatever direction you'd like, but when you think back to your childhood, what were you like growing up? What were your interests, hobbies, maybe who were influences? You don't have to answer all of those, but uh, when you think back to that time, what are the things that really stand out? What stands out is I was a terrible student because I was a class clown. Uh, my parents had more parent-teacher conferences and meetings with the principal, Sister Barbara, and all my teachers, and I had to carry around a uh, <laughs> behavioral sheet 
to get my behavior approved by every teacher for every class. So I remember that. Uh, I remember that, that I ironically loved baseball and hockey. Uh, that's all I did. That's all I watched. That's all I followed. Uh, so to do it for a living is really a joy. Um, my favorite athletes at the time were Wayne Gretzky, Denny Savard. <clears throat> On the baseball side, Ricky Henderson. And I remember getting a chance to go to Comiskey Park in Chicago to see Ricky Henderson, and he had a day off, so he didn't play. Um, what else could I remember from my childhood? It was a lot of fun. I grew up in an awesome neighborhood that had literally probably 100 guys within five years of each other that all grew up together and lived together in the same neighborhood for many, many years, and a lot of our parents still live in that neighborhood. And that's about what I remember from my childhood. So you mentioned... I forget her name, sister something. So did you go to a school, like a, a religious school, or a, a, I guess it wasn't just your, your average public school growing up? I went to a Catholic school. Um, it was a parochial school, St. William. Uh, I started there in fifth grade, and, uh, yeah, that was a great experience. When you say that, what what was so great about it, other than the fact that you were uh, you were the class clown and having some fun, how did that <laughs> Did that actually influence you as you kind of grew up, or uh, was it just? It did. Okay. Yeah, I think, well, you know what? I had a teacher, Mr. Stiblo. May he rest in peace. He, uh, he didn't like me very much, and, and when I was going into high school, high school was really the most important thing for me growing up. Uh, I went to a, a school called Fenwick High School. It was ranked really high in the nation at the time, and my teacher said that I would never make it through there, and that kind of motivated me, and that's when I started to kind of have a bit of a drive. Um, and that school really is what molded me. Uh, I learned so much there. Uh, learned a lot about discipline. We had a dean of discipline. It was all boys. I had to wear a tie. I couldn't have my hair below the collar. And uh, Mr. Heldman was the dean of discipline. And uh, early on, the first couple of years, I spent many a day in his office. But uh, as I grew up, I got tired of dealing with him. So uh, I kind of grew up from there. <laughs> well, that's interesting because, you know, when I think back to – my you know middle school high school experience like you know not that it was identical but it was a, a similar track I, I i didn't do bad things uh you know i wasn't like hitting kids or uh doing things that were maybe cause for great concern but i was definitely i don't know that i was the class clown but i definitely tried to be and had a lot of behavioral issues and there were a few teachers who i could tell were just sick and tired of me and inside that really kind of that got at me. And then I also had a few teachers who I think about who, uh, you know, didn't leave my corner and, and, you know, whether they believed in me or they just, uh, you know, were going to be incredibly patient. And, and I think about those teachers and how much I appreciate to this day, what they did. Cause not that I think I was about to go down the wrong path, uh, but you know, maybe I didn't stay at the school I went to and maybe I didn't have the experience that I had, which ended up being a, a tremendous experience. So I guess it's, you know, a lot of people look to college and, and maybe a college professor that was really uh, influential. But it's interesting you bring up teachers around that age, because I think for me, it was it was very similar. And those were uh, enjoyable years and, and important years for me when I look back on where I am now and, and where I was then. For sure. I feel the same way. Yeah, I have a, a few teachers that kind of took me under their wing and really pushed hard for me because they saw something. Um and that was important. I think it was important to be at the school I was at 
in fifth grade on because they had a vested interest in making sure they, you know, tried everything before they kicked me out because my parents were paying a lot of money. Um, and, um, you know, they didn't have the money to, to pay for the school. They couldn't afford it. So we, everybody had a vested interest in trying to get me through. Um, but, um, and the thing about high school that I remember, I'm a very competitive person and I always have been. And so when I was in a school where these, some of these kids, I mean, the kids at my school ended up going to Harvard and Yale. And I mean, so you had to try to keep up with those kids. They were smarter than I was. They were much better students and they were going places you could see. And so you didn't want to be left behind. And I think that really helped drive me. Now, one of the first things that I think I spoke with you about when we first met was Italian food and your Italian heritage. And I'm curious in what ways has that influenced you, whether it's just, uh, you know, some of the, the cultural aspects that were implemented growing up, uh, personality stuff, or is other than your love of Italian food, in what ways has your Italian heritage maybe played a role in, in who you are and, and how you go about things? Uh, I think because everything starts with family. Um, every Sunday it was dinner with the grandparents. Um, you know, and then family extends way beyond that. You start to live in a place where everybody seems to be Italian and your friends become your family. And I mean, I've got at least a dozen friends that I've known for 45 years now, and I'm proud to say that. Uh, I talk to them all the time. Uh, I think that, you know, we have, we have some things that are really important to us. Uh, you know, we get taught things about loyalty, um, about omerta, as they say, just to kind of keep your word and, you know, to keep secrets if you need to. Um, just a lot of things that I think really help me today. I'm a very loyal person. Uh, I care about people a lot. I saw my father, you know, help everybody. I saw so many people just help everybody. And I think that's what our neighborhood represented. I don't know if it's so much about Italian heritage as much as it's just about the people that we were around who happened to be Italian, but everybody helped one another. And I think that's important. And so it helps me today. You know, I always have holidays for people in our business. I always have a Christmas because you never know. And you're well aware. There's so many people that work in our business that are in di- that came from a different state, and they may not have plans on Christmas. So it's important to open the house up and know that they have a place to go. Uh, I think it's a lot of stuff like that. I, I want to get back to that when we actually get into to your career and and what you do. I'm I'm going to bookmark that uh, because I, I imagine there are ways, just from a professional standpoint, that uh, that plays a role, but. You, you mentioned your love of sports growing up. What drew you to sports? Was there was that just a familial thing? Were you kind of an outlier in your household with a love of sports? How did you get pushed down the sports path? Well, I think as a kid, you start back then, it was all about Little League, right? Everybody played Little League. Uh, so that's where I developed my love of baseball. Um, I have my father to thank for my love of hockey. He always pushed me into hockey. He put me on skates. And I'll say this again because I think it's a theme that rings true for me. It was another thing he couldn't afford. You know, when you grow up in, a, in the city, um, you know, most of the kids that played hockey lived up in the suburbs, and they had, you know, they were more well-to-do. We were only, me and my brothers were the only kids from the neighborhood that really played ice hockey, because it was expensive. And I find it, I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that hockey has been so good to me, working in the NHL for 27 years. 
because my dad worked really hard to get me through hockey and he couldn't afford it. And even the high school I went to, you know, they had a hockey team and it, you had to pay $1,200 for your kid to play on the team. And you had to pay for ice time. You had to pay for the equipment. And it was my dad who took me in eighth grade or seventh grade to a village championship that that high school was playing in. And there was like 3000 people at the game. And when I went to that game, I was hooked and I knew I wanted to go to that high school and it was all part of my dad's plan. So my dad basically put a plan together to get me to play a sport that he couldn't afford at a school that he couldn't afford. And that I think is where I also learned my, you know, very hard work ethic um, because I had my dad setting that example. Was hockey ever an option for you beyond school or, or was that not really a, a consideration? It wasn't a consideration. I got a pretty late start as far as being really good. Um, you know, I played on a club team in a college for a little while, but I, you know, I never played beyond, you know, travel teams and stuff like that. And I wasn't, I'll never tell you, I'm not the guy that's going to tell you, wow, I could have done this. I wasn't good enough. And I, and working around athletes, just like when you watch baseball players, you know, you walk down the, the, first baseline when guys are warming up and everybody's throwing 90 miles an hour. So if you can't throw 90 miles an hour, you can't play at that level. So I just had fun with it. Uh, I, I haven't played in a few years, but I did play all the way up until probably about age 45. I would play as much as I could. All right. Then what drew you to, to the broadcast side of things? What, what do you remember about your first experience and, and what kind of pushed you down that path? Uh, the Chicago Blackhawks announcer was a guy named Pat Foley, and I lo- I just loved listening to him. And then I wanted to aspire to be like him. Uh, so I got into television to try to be a play-by-play guy. And then as time went on, going to school for it, <clears throat> I started to realize that I had something with directing and producing. And so I turned that into my focus, and that's how I got into production. Okay, so – you mentioned Matt Foley or Pat Foley, excuse me. What, uh, who, I don't know. Did you ever get the chance to, to meet him? And and if so, uh, or if not, who were some of your early influences as you were just kind of getting your feet wet and, and gaining an understanding of what this was all about? Well, hands down, it was a lady named Lisa Seltzer, who was the producer director for the Chicago Blackhawks. And I was interning at sports channel Chicago. And, um, I ended up becoming the intern for the Blackhawks telecast. And when, I mean, it wasn't work, right? I'm doing stuff for the Blackhawks. It was the most awesome experience of my life. And I worked so hard because I felt like, man, this is my chance. And here I am. This is the Blackhawks. This is sports channel. If I can just somehow prove to these people that I'm worthy of a job, this is it. And I couldn't work harder. And uh, I was going to school full-time. I was working to try to pay for school, and I was doing my internship. And Lisa really, really looked out for me and took care of me. And she ended up applying for the director of broadcasting job for the soon-to-be new NHL franchise, the Mighty Ducks of Anaheim in 1993, which just happened to coincide with the time that I was graduating college. And... um, she called me and said, I got a job for you. And um, I'll never forget it. She's like, are you ready to go through the wall for me? And I was like, you bet I am. And she gave me my first chance and she taught me so much. She really, really did. Uh, And then she worked with Pat Foley for 
15 years. So I got to know Pat and I know him really well now. He, you know, every time he sees me, he, he, you know, makes it a point to talk to me and ask how I'm doing. And, uh, he, he mentioned me on the air because my wife sings the anthem for the stars. And when the Blackhawks play, they'll cover the anthem and then he'll say, that's Selena Ray. And her husband is Mark Vittorio, former intern of the Blackhawks, who's now the director <laughs> for the Dallas stars. And he gives me, a, he gives me a big shout out. So everybody back home will text me. I'll be like, dude, I saw your wife and I heard your name. And it, it, so it's always cool that Pat does that. He's just, he's a good guy. And it's really cool to get to know a guy like that. I've golfed with him. I've gone to dinners with him. And I've actually done a couple of Blackhawks games when the stars didn't make the playoffs. Um, they asked me to do a couple playoff games for them. And so it was a great experience to work with my idol growing up. That's really cool. And and I want to get into the that role with Anaheim and, and being there uh, really from the word go. But before we do that, how would you describe for people who really don't have much familiarity of what goes on in, in the roles you mentioned, uh, how would you describe the role of a, a director and a role of a producer. I know it. You know the the responsibilities may vary sport to sport as far as the pace and how active you are in each role. But just generally speaking, how would you describe the the role of the director uh, and the producer? The best way to describe it is they both have a responsibility together to put a show on, to make sure that the cameras look right, the cuts are right, the replays are right, the graphics are right. And they both share in that responsibility. If you had to give someone the upper hand as far as who's in charge of it, I would say the producer is in charge of the overall of where the broadcast needs to go. It's the director's job to get the show there. So one of the best descriptions someone gave me is that the producer is like the head coach and the director is like the quarterback. So the producer is going to tell you, hey, we're going to go to this replay and we're going to go to that replay. And it's the director's job. If it's a replay of Mike Madonna, who had a breakaway uh, camera three, give me a shot of nine white on the whistle Two, give me the goalie who made the save. And then when the whistle blows, it's ready to take two, ready three, take three. Then the producer will tell you what replay machine it is. He's queuing up all the replays. All right, let's go to X first. All right, ready to replay to X, fly to X. All right, Y's next. Ready to dissolve to Y, dissolve to Y. Three, give me Madonna again. All right, ready out to three and fly to camera three. That all makes sense. (laughs) Why have you gravitated more towards directing? I I know you've done both, (laughs) but why, why did directing appeal more to you? Well, one thing that I'm not is a type A personality. Hyper-organization is not my forte. It just never has been. Uh, I'm one of those creative guys, so I'm a disheveled mess sometimes. And being being a good producer means being hyper-organized because you have to, everyone is relying on you to know exactly what's going on. So you got to have your formats done. You got to have your meetings in order. You got to have all your sponsored elements in order. And that's just something that I can do it and I can do it well. I just don't like doing it if I'm being totally honest. And the thing about directing that I love is that I show up, I do my prep, I put the headset on. And when that game starts, that's when I'm doing my job. And that's what I do best. And that's what I love the most. So it's not that I didn't like producing, I did like it, but I just, I'm a better director than I am a producer. And it just came more naturally to me being a director. All right. So if you watch a, a broadcast, I don't know, maybe you watch a week's worth of broadcast, chances are the, uh, the analyst or the play by play 
broadcaster is going to reference the truck. Uh, and, you know, I think a lot of people hear about the truck, and, and I've been asked this before. What the heck is the truck? How would you describe what the truck is and, and what goes on in the truck and, and how either calm it can be, but but in my experience when I've uh, spent some time in there, maybe how chaotic but organized chaos uh, goes on in the truck. The truck is a 53-foot trailer. Semi pulls it up, and they usually park it by the dumpster, which is, uh, which is very <laughs> common in most stadiums. Uh, it has an expansion that comes out of the side, so it's called an expando. So that thing comes out to create more room. And in that truck is all the equipment necessary to televise a game. So it has the switcher, which has all the camera buttons and all the re- uh, replay machine buttons and all of that. It has the audio room, which has a huge audio console for the audio guy. It has a tape room that has, my God, six tape machines that record every source for replays, it has the video operator who has to shade all the cameras, and then all the cameras are underneath the bed, and then they go into the arena. Everybody sets all the cameras up, and they all come to the truck. Um, there is seated next to me, to my left is the producer, to my right is the technical director. The technical director is one of the most important people in that truck, I promise you, because he's got to hit all the buttons that I ask him to do. When I say to take camera two, he takes it. When I replay to whatever, he's got to go to it. Uh, we have an audio operator, A1, A2. They're all running all of the mics and everything So for the sound that you hear. Um, and basically, we have graphics people, uh, tape operators, the guy that does the bug, which tells you the clock and the score, or if you're watching a baseball game, it gives you the count with all the runners on base and what have you and everybody's doing their job listening to the producer and the director so this is what i wanted to uh pocket what you had mentioned about the 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 compassion and the loyalty and and the just the interaction with people when i asked you about uh you know your your italian influence how much professionally do you think that has helped you because your job, as you just kind of mentioned over the last couple minutes, there's a lot of interacting. There's a lot of teamwork that goes on. Uh, and you know, you, 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 a, I guess in, in some ways you're kind of bossing people around for lack of a better phrase, but not in a, in a disrespectful way, but you're still, you're relying on other people. And I think just like a sports dynamic, you, you know, you're, you're more willing to, to go hard for someone that you have that relationship with and, and someone you respect, just like, uh, you know, you, you, you talked about with taking that job and running through a brick wall, taking that Anaheim job, you develop these relationships and, and maybe you, you find that extra, extra surge to, you know, put in that extra effort. So I'm just curious, how much do you feel like that part of you that we talked about earlier has impacted you or, or enhanced your ability uh, as a producer and and now as a director working with a team? Well, I think it's, it's everything. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, I spent eight years with one franchise and then now I'm almost 19 years with another. And so my loyalty is very evident and I'm loyal to the people that I work with. That includes all of our camera guys on our home show. We've got guys that are some of the most talented people in the entire country. And I know that because I've worked around the country and I know what everybody's capable of. Our camera guys, our audio guys, our technical director. I mean, everybody is so great at what they do, and we've all been doing it together. And so there's just, you know, things like loyalty matter. Our technical director and other people, to give an example, they know how important 
we feel that they are. So they don't do other things. They don't go other places. They do all of our shows, and it's it's nice to have that. Um, I, I just think all those things really matter, and um, and it's done pretty well for me. All right, so you mentioned Anaheim. You know, it's one thing to go and, and join. You know, if you were to, and, and hopefully this isn't the case and there's, there's, there's not something I don't know that's brewing, but if you were to leave uh, today, leave the Rangers broadcast and join uh, the Kansas City Royals broadcast, that's a, a franchise that's been around. Uh, you know, you'd probably be able to put your fingerprints on that broadcast, but they're, they've been doing stuff, you know, a certain way for however many years. But when you went to Anaheim, you started from scratch. Uh, what was that experience like and, and how did you go about essentially building a broadcast? It was, first of all, the greatest experience of my career. And I think that if you ask anybody that was with that team at that time, being involved in the inaugural season of a new franchise is something that you will take with you for the rest of your life. But what was unique about it was it was still in the early 90s, so it wasn't you know, and it was hockey. So not so many people were experienced in hockey. So everybody was new at pretty much our analyst. It was his first analyst job, our play-by-play guy. It was the first time he'd ever done play-by-play in the NHL. Everybody was new to it. And we spent three years until we made the playoffs for the first time together. The coaches, Ron Wilson, it was his first head coaching job. And we all dealt with that together. Even the players, some of the players, it was their first time having a regular shift on an NHL team or being a starting goaltender for Guy Bear. And I've known those people for 27 years, and we all share that same feeling together. So every time we see one another, we go back to what it was like then. And what, I, what, what I've realized is you can never replicate that. If there was a new, like Seattle is a new franchise coming into the NHL in two years, and if I was hired to be with Seattle – it could never be like what Anaheim was because I already have too much experience and I'm a grizzled veteran and I don't, and I already know what to expect. And so it was just truly, it was a ride of a lifetime. What is there one specific challenge that you think back on with that experience and like, man, like I, I lost sleep over this. I stressed over this, but gosh, we were able to, uh, overcome this, and, and I'm so grateful for that isolated experience uh, it, it, well, in that process. Let me speak for Lisa, because I didn't have any skin in it. I was a newbie, and I was just like this fresh-faced kid out of college. I was just <laughs> happy to be there. Lisa had to basically, nowadays, they announce a franchise, and they have three years or two years to prepare. We had like seven months. And I got there in September, and our first game was October 8th, 1993. I got there like September 30th. I mean, I was there for a week leading up to it. Um, Lisa worked so hard to get that thing on the air. She had to get a truck deal. She had to get a TV contract put in place. She had to get camera positions figured out. The new arena didn't have camera positions on the center platform, so they had to take a suite, and they had to turn it into a camera platform. So she had to go through all of that stuff. And it actually took its toll on her because about a month into the season, she had like a, um, a physical breakdown and we had to take her to the hospital. Um, so it was quite a daunting task. Um, but like I said, for me, I mean, I was one, I was a month earlier, I was an intern and I was working at Motorola in the shipping department. So I was just happy to be around. I'd do whatever they needed. All right. So one of the things that, that 
when I asked people in preparation for this conversation about you, uh, the one common theme, and there were a few that we're going to get to, but one was uh, your ability to handle big moments. And, and I know that some people say that, oh, the moments make the, uh, you know, make it easy because a big moment, you know, is provides that energy, the emotion. But I also know, uh, you know, from my knowledge of the TV side, well, that's, yeah, I guess there's maybe some truth to that, but there are ways to uh, capture that moment, uh, you know, better than others or, and heck, I mean, there's certainly ways to mess it up. Uh, and, and there are ways to amplify it. But one of the, the consistent themes from people who have worked with you, uh, they've raved about your ability to handle big moments. What are, what are important elements to you when you are directing a game and there is a big moment, whether you're expecting it, you know, it's a, 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 a pregame ceremony or something, you know, that's going to happen, or maybe something that you're not sure is going to happen, but ends up happening as the game unfolds. Um, I'll start with the crew, um, because I have two moments I can think of that were big. I have Beltre's 3,000th hit and Mike Madonna's final game as a Dallas star. Those are two of the bigger moments I've ever been around. Um, when you work a long time with your crew, they all know kind of my style. They, uh, they know that I like a creative type of shooting. I like to be, you know, wider so you can push to something else or have two things in your frame and then go to something. So they kind of know exactly what I'm looking for so that when we hit a big moment, it's kind of great for me because every monitor I look at with every camera has got something awesome and it's like low-hanging fruit. And that's a testament to our crew. And that really, um, if I was going to say what I can bring to that is I do think that I have an ability to see a lot of things in the same frame, kind of. So if I'm looking at eight monitors, I can kind of see them all. And I don't know, it's always happened to be something I could do. So if there's a perfect shot, I can find it. Um, and I, I think, too, that, you know, we, you just our crew is so calm and collected. And so it, 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 it slows those moments down. Um, so, you know, the cool thing about it is at the end of the day, those are just all team efforts that everybody just is, like, raising their level. And you talk about, like, the loyalty factor and all of the commitment. You know, we got guys that love the teams so much. You know, when we did that Madonna moment, we all knew it was the final game he'd ever play in Dallas as a Dallas star. And so everybody was invested in it. And when that game ended, you know, a couple of the guys were teary-eyed. I mean, they had been around him for, you know, 20 years. And, you know, Mike was a great guy, and he talked to all of us, and he would shoot pucks at some of the camera guys and all of that. So it's stuff like that, man, that makes it really special. So you mentioned two of the moments I wanted to ask you about. There are others, uh, and, and, and I guess they all have varying levels of emotion, but uh, on, on the negative side, I, I imagine you were in the truck for the Rich Peverly game. Maybe uh, yeah. a, a, a bittersweet uh, one is when Trevor Strader sang the national anthem, the the, the bitter part, obviously, with what uh, went down with his father and, and his illness, the, the late Dave Strader, but the, the sweet part, just you know how special that moment must have been. And then I know you didn't, direct the last game at Globe Life Park, but I also know that you did a lot of work to help uh, Dave Burchett and, and the rest of the crew prepare for that. So th those are those are some really emotional moments. Well, is there anything different? Like the Adrian Beltre 3,000th hit is there's emotion there, but I, I guess it's a different type of emotion than some of the ones we talked about, including that Madonna yeah. game. Is there a different approach when you know that there's going to be something that's tugging at, at 
you know, the emotional sensibilities of people or a, a different way you go about it? Yeah, well, the, like Dave Strader with Trevor singing, we could prepare for that. There's actually a funny story about that with Mike Leary, our producer. I still make fun of him to this day for what he did. So the producer has this thing called an ISO monitor. And what the ISO monitor is, is the monitor for an announcer that the producer can punch in anything he wants to show the announcer. And it's right by the announcer's position. Okay. So I told Mike, what I wanted to do is I wanted to have a camera by the, by Dave Strader's position. And I wanted to, at some point during the anthem, I wanted to go to that position so you could see Strader's chair. And then his son would be in the monitor, the ISO monitor, and it would look great. And it would be like this really kind of dramatic shot. That was the whole point. Well, Leary is always out of habit. He hits the he puts program in that monitor all the time for his announcer. So he's always hitting the program button. Well, he just didn't think that I needed it. He forgot. So he hit program. So now the moment happens and I go to this, what is the best shot of the, of what I, you know, what I at least want it to look like. And when I go to it, the monitor that's supposed to have Trevor and it has program. And I, if you ever see what program does, it keeps feeding itself. So then it's program and program and program. And I'm like, Mike, Mike, change it, change it. And then he hit the button. He hit the right button, thank God. And it, it worked. So we had about two seconds of a, of a mishap. But it was just like the, the perfect shot. And then he felt so bad. So I just always rub him. I always rub, rub his nose in it. Uh, two things. One, he told me that you were without question going to bring that up. So we checked that one up. Yep. Uh, and two, he blames Eddie Olchick for that because of of what Eddie likes to do when, when he works those games with, with uh, Eddie. So uh, that was his excuse, and I'm sure he shared that excuse with you. Uh, but, you know, he brought that story up to me uh, to, to kind of, you know, build off this, this big moment discussion because he said what makes you unique is that you don't just take the big moment and, and let it kind of handle itself, but you like to create, and, and, and you probably will know what I mean when I say this. I, I'm certainly hoping you do. But in his words, that you will create moments within moments. And uh, I, I guess that example that you just shared with uh, how you wanted to, to structure everything is is that. But what what does that mean to you, and and why why is it, why going about it that way is, is, is important to you? And, and how did you kind of get down that path where you're like, okay, you know, these are the things I want to do. I want to create moments within moments. Well, I just think it's my job is to, 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 you know, make it look the best that it can. And so if you can understand kind of how it's going to play out and, and, and just kind of add some creativity to it, you're doing your job. If you just sit back and react to it, then you're not really, you know, I mean, I knew what the anthem was going to be and what it meant to everybody, right? I knew that there was going to be people wearing uh, pink or purple. I don't know what that color is. It looks like pink purple, but they were going to wear the pink jerseys, um, and they were gonna, there were going to be jerseys with Dave's last name and stuff like that. So it's like if you if you you know you just got to tell people to to find it so that you have it. But you got to know it going. You know, you just assume that it's going to happen going in, and it's your job to kind of make it look the best you can. Um, so I guess that's it. Okay. So, you know, another thing that, that multiple people shared with me is your level of preparation and that, uh, there are, you know, directors often know what's going on with the team they're covering. And, you know, it's not that they don't know 
who the key players are, but that you take it to another level with your uh, your awareness of you know the 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 non statistical stories, the statistical stories, and that you know you consume so much information. So, what level of preparation do you put in? Let's let's take baseball because uh, I always think preparing for baseball is so tough because it's every single day. Uh, but what what level of preparation do you put in, and, and what are the things that are important for you to consume? in advance of, of a game or a series? Well, I think you just start with every season, right? Every, you live the season with the team. And so every season has the stories and you gotta, you gotta follow them and you gotta remember them and you gotta take note of them. And, and what I mean by that is there may be an instance where, you know, maybe a starting pitcher throws at a guy to defend his teammate. And then, you know, let's say that was Mike Miner. Uh, well, two months down the road, that may happen again with the same team. Well, it's my job to remember, well, Miner did the same thing. Six, give me a shot of Mike Miner. Ready, six, take six. Because that'll probably remind CJ if he didn't pick up on it. And then he'll be like, well, this happened a few months ago with Mike Miner. And so it's just stuff like that, right? And, and that's the whole point about being a fan of this. If you love the game, you live the season with the team. And that's, you know, you're doing your job, but really you're just following it. Um, and I, I don't know, I just, for some reason, I pick up on that stuff. I remember it. Uh, you know, the other thing that's important is to watch highlights, uh, to see the other team and who's doing well and who's playing, you know, who's playing well, who's the surprise shortstop or whatever that is. You just need to know the league. Uh, you need to know the players because, you know, at any time Tom Greve may mention, um, you know, Derek Jeter, if we're playing the Yankees. I mean, that's an easy one. He's playing shortstop. But what if he mentions another player and he's got a great story on him? I got to get there immediately. So I need to know who that is. What a, I I guess those, those conversations. So from a a sports talk standpoint, I always ask people, uh, do you like to know going into a segment, what your partner's angles are or or what he's going to say, or she's going to say, or do you, would you rather just know, Hey, we're going to talk about uh, Adrian Beltre's 3,000th hit. But that you, you know nothing more beyond that because you want it to be organic. I guess in your role, it's important for you to, to live inside the mind of the guys and gals on air. Uh, and, and how important is that chemistry to build? And, and I guess I ask that specifically because with Dave Raymond and, and CJ Niskowski, uh, they've only been a part of the broadcast now for a few years. It's not like we're dealing with guys uh, like Tom Grieve, who've been a part of the broadcast for you know forever, seemingly. Uh, so when you've got new talent, how important is that, and how do you go about developing that chemistry, or is that just something that naturally happens over time? Ah, uh, beers. <laughs> no, I, I. It's funny though, but you know, if you if you hang out with the people that you work with, especially the announcers. You know, a lot of times when you start talking about work, they're going to start telling you things. They're going to start regurgitating what they're preparing for. They don't even realize it. I see that more so with Razor. So, like, working with Razor, we've worked together so long now, I know everything he's going to talk about. But it's nice to sit and have a couple beers with him and just kind of talk hockey because, you know, he may start talking about St. Louis, who we're about to play. And I'll be like, did you know that this happened and this happened and this happened? And then we're just talking in conversation. But if I hear him start mentioning that in the game, I know exactly where I need to go. And so it's just stuff like that. 
you know, on football, what I would do is I would sit with the analysts and I would be like, hey, bud, what, uh, what are some of your key storylines? Um, because I want to know. Because if he's going to talk about the fact that the offensive coordinator of one team, you know, went to high school with the defensive coordinator of another team, I got to get that ready. So I need to, my camera guys need to know who they are, what they look like. If I just try to go off of that when he mentions it, we'll never get there. And then I'm not doing my job. All right. Outside the box thinking, Vito, I think it's, it's critical in a lot of roles, especially creative roles. And, and this is another thing that your peers with whom I spoke, I already gave away one of them uh, earlier, uh, shared about you is, is your, ability to to not just come up with random outside the box ideas that make no sense but but outside the box ideas that uh just fit in so well and and then ultimately become staples or fixtures of of you know your broadcast is is that something for lack of a better phrase is is outside the box thinking a like just a, a god given gift or is that can you train yourself to be better at that or is it just something that you know some people are just naturally more creative than others is is it more that or is it something that you've worked at I I think I've worked at it a little bit you know when I was with Anaheim our CEO was Michael Eisner and this was a man who was just bought a hockey team and he was asking about hey I, I can't recognize the players they need to take their helmets off and it's like, well, they can. It's a rule. Why don't they take them off when they're on the bench? And it's like, well, because they're going to go back on the ice in 30 seconds and they don't have time to put it on. Well, what if they had a button that they could hit and the helmet would go back? And he would just rattle off idea after idea after idea. Because what I was, what I was able to learn from a guy like that, he didn't care how dumb it might sound. Because the dumbest idea could be the best idea that we ever had if you just try it. And, you know, Jason Walsh, a great example, when he was our producer – He's now our executive producer. He wanted, he had an idea that he had a four box. He wanted to put four cameras up at the same time. We're going to take it live. We'll take it live. It'll be great. And we tried it. It it was bad. Okay. You know, he admits it, but you know what? How would we know if we don't try? And I I think I've been working with a lot of good people that think like that. So you end up having to think like that. Like Daryl Ray one time came in and he said, here's what I want to do. The next time we have a five-on-three, before the, before the face-off, I want you to take a shot of Marty Turkle and then just stay on him and just show the fans what he's doing in a, in a power play. If they score, we'll show replays. Just try it. So we did. And we got unbelievable reviews from that. Like the head of the NHL broadcast department called us and was like, that was awesome. That was a great idea. You know, you just got to try it. That wasn't my idea, by the way. That was Razor's. <laughs> uh, all right. Last thing, Vito, uh, you know, you, I know you mentioned growing up, uh, that you love baseball and you loved hockey, but I guess, you know, more recently you have done more and more baseball from a directorial standpoint. Uh, what is it about directing a baseball game that you, you most enjoy in, in, uh, I guess one of the things that, that one of your peers mentioned is that it, it seems like they've witnessed you falling in love with baseball before their eyes. So I, I guess when you hear that, what does that mean? And is that true? Have you, have you grown an even stronger affinity for baseball from a professional standpoint? Or uh, how would you describe your relationship with baseball? Well, my, my relationship with baseball is that when I got into it, it was so late in my career. Um, 
I have to go back. In high school, I played both baseball and, high, and hockey, and I quit baseball because I liked hockey better. Um, but I was better at baseball. And so I just turned my back on baseball, and I got into hockey, and then I went to the NHL, and I worked for years and years and years, and then I finally got into baseball. And so when I got into baseball, what I realized was, wow, I, I love this game more than I ever dreamed. And the thing about, you know, when you're not working baseball, everybody that works at, oh, my God, it's such a grind. It's so many games. It's every day. But I looked at it differently. I loved being in the everyday because you don't realize how strategy comes into play and how a manager has to manage, right? But this bullpen, I probably should go to this guy, but he's tired and I can't bring him in. And there's just all of these things that go into the everyday of baseball. That's pretty, pretty cool. And, um, and so when you live it like that every day, it's really awesome. And as far as directing it, it's the hardest game to direct, hands down. And the, the, somebody said this to me, and I always explain it like this. It's the only professional sport where the object that they use is away from where they score. So basketball, they put a ball in a hoop. Football, they throw the ball in the end zone. Hockey, they shoot a puck in the net. Baseball, it's in the right center gap, and two guys are scoring. And it's my job to show you all that. And, oh, by the way, don't do what I did when I was – thinking I was getting the hang of it and have a guy cut a ball off turn throw behind the runner and pick him off for the third out of the inning and nobody knows what happens because the producer was like what the hell just happened and I said I don't know what just happened well there you go that's my conversation with Mark Vittorio I hope you really enjoyed it uh, as I mentioned at the beginning you know, when you say the name Mark Vittorio and you're not in the broadcasting industry, you might scratch your head and wonder, oh, you know, who's that guy? Uh, but if you're in the broadcasting industry and you say that name, there is a lot of credibility that comes with mentioning the name Mark Vittorio with everything he's accomplished and uh, his innovative mind. And, and hopefully you got a sense of that with that conversation. Well, uh, that's going to do it, obviously, for this episode of the Justice Set Conversation. Excited to release... Uh, another episode here in a few days and another one shortly thereafter that we've got a former NFL player and a sports broadcaster paving uh, her own path. Uh, that's still to come this week uh, for the Justice Set Conversation. As always, please subscribe, like, comment, share. I'd love for you to do any and all of those four things uh, when it comes to this conversation or anything else uh, a part of this channel. Thanks so much again. Stay safe, be healthy. We'll talk to you later.